So we were on our way back from Canaan Valley on Thursday, and Amanda got a call from her sister. Um, a member of their family had suddenly passed away that morning. 45-year-old lady uh, had dropped her daughter off for her first day of kindergarten, went home and called her friend and said, I'm, a, I'm in excruciating pain, and they showed up and she was dead. It had a massive heart attack, 45 years old. I got back to work on Friday, <clears throat> and a guy called me and said, uh, we have some invoices outstanding with you. I need to check on them, make sure I see if we're right. And he said, I guess you heard about Mike, the guy that worked there. I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, he went on vacation July 2nd, died on vacation. I'm like, wow. I'm processing death. And death is... Unfortunately, I guess, how you look at it, what happens when our life is over? Well, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never die. So there's some caveats there. But our body, if Jesus doesn't come back, all of us will reach a point to where our body ceases to function and we die. And it's sad. And it seems like it's sadder in different situations, right? I mean, if somebody's lived a good long life and they pass away at 94 in their sleep, we're like, it's sad that they're gone, but, you know, praise God, that's precious in His sight or the death of His saints. But if it's a kid or a young mother and it's sudden, it just makes it tougher, makes it more difficult to process And we have a harder time making sense of death the younger we are, I think. So this morning, we're going to address the subject of death. And I feel like, wholeheartedly, that it's in a very hopeful way. Because we're not just going to see death. We're going to see three resurrections today. Three. In one story. It's pretty neat. If you would, open your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. I was like, open your Bibles? Who does that anymore, right? Open your app. I don't know. Get there. We're going to have it up here too, but if you want to have it in front of you uh, as we go through, that'd be great. The eye gate is incredibly important. So if we can have it going in our eye gate, our ear gate get it in our mind, get it in our hearts. The more ways we can get the Word into us, the better. So if you would stand as we read today's passage. And if you don't have a Bible or an app, like we said, it will be up here for you to see. Incredible passage of Scripture today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Let's pray. God, we recognize and have recognized this morning that you are worthy. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit, who is moving and acting among us here this morning, that you would give us insight, that you would give us wisdom from your Word, and that you would show us the power that we have to implement these things that we see today. And God, they are awesome things. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What a passage. So we're nearing the end of chapter 9 with today's message. We're not quite there, but we're getting there. And I think it's important to note, to, to go back and re-emphasize where we've been in this progression of chapters 8 and 9. We started this section, chapter 8, after coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus came down the mountain and it says that people were in awe because of the authority that He spoke with. And then we moved into chapter 8 and chapter 8 and 9 are kind of their own little self-contained section. And there are sets of miracles in these chapters with short bursts of teaching or explanation in between the three sets of miracles in chapters 8 and 9. In chapter 8, we saw Jesus heal a leper... He healed a centurion servant, and then he healed Peter's mother-in-law and all others that were brought to him. After those three miracles, Jesus talked of the cost of following him as they got into a boat to cross the sea. Then, we see three more miracles. We see Jesus calming a storm. We see him healing the two men who had the legion of demons. And then, back across the lake, back in Capernaum, he healed a paralytic that was brought to him and lowered through the roof in front of him. Then we had another interlude where Jesus called Matthew to be his disciple and then was questioned by the Pharisees and then the disciples of John. So that's where we were two weeks ago. Today, we start into our third of the three sets of miracles, which will bring us to the end of chapter 9. And that will end with a charge from Jesus, chapter 9 will, before we move into chapter 10, which is the second of the major discourses in Matthew's gospel. Now, Again, I don't expect you to kind of have all that in line, but I want to keep reiterating it because it's, the, the flow of this gospel is very important. Matthew is trying to communicate one idea. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. The coming King who would reign on David's throne forever and ever. And he's doing that in convincing ways. He's done it from the beginning, from his ancestry, and then we see his heritage and all these prophecies that he fulfilled. And then we see him burst onto the scene and do this ministry. And we're seeing more and more of his messiahship, if you will. Okay? So we have to keep reiterating that so that we see if you're trying to... So, ladies, if you've ever written your husband a note, have you ever seen the, the, the one joke... Lady said, I need you to go to the store. She wrote him a note and get a jug of milk. And if they've got eggs, get six. So the husband comes home with six jugs of milk. She's like, why did you get six jugs of milk? He said, you said if they had eggs to get six jugs of milk. She's like, no, no, that's not what I said at all. If we're not careful, we miss the purpose of what's being said. The woman needed a jug of milk and six eggs. He missed the purpose. He didn't see it. He, he saw what he thought he saw. 
It's important that we see Matthew's purpose here. Matthew wants to show the main thing is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So this whole flow, all 28 chapters, is very specific, inspired by the Holy Spirit to show us who Jesus is. So through chapters 8 and 9, we have seen Jesus displaying messianic characteristics in an almost progressive nature. Okay? We've seen Him show mastery over diseases. We've seen Him show mastery over nature, the natural world. We've seen Him show mastery over demons, the supernatural world. And all of these were foretold as messianic powers. The Messiah, the coming Messiah that the Jews were looking for would exhibit these abilities and Jesus was doing these things in order to show what this kingdom of the heavens that He was proclaiming looks like in real life, in our lives, in our world. Well, today we reach what I feel like is a peak moment in this progression of miracles. Jesus will show His mastery over death. That ultimate end, that ultimate fear. Now he will say in Matthew 11, when approached by John's disciples who are asking if he is the Messiah or not, this is later, this is what he says. Jesus answered them, John wants to know if you're the Messiah, shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. So that's Jesus' answer to, are you the Messiah? He said, you go tell John this. And it's messianic prophecies from the book of Isaiah that he gives him. And he says, I'm doing these things. You go tell John that. John can put the pieces together for himself. And he would say the same thing to us. Go and tell Providence. The blind see. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, in that progression, see what Jesus says qualifies him as the Messiah. The blind receive sight, the lame walking, lepers cleanse, deaf hearing, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is doing all these things. And we see it in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew. And the last two, raising the dead and preaching good news to the poor, are seen clearly today. Now, Jesus is not going to present the gospel to anybody. But they're going to have the good news proclaimed to them in a different way. And we're going to see that today. So... What we will see today is Jesus directly impacting three people. A religious leader, an outcast, diseased woman, and a dead girl. And we'll see Him completely change these people with messianic power and authority, leaving all three of them changed in ways that only God Himself could change them. And again, what a passage it is. So let's dig in. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So, excuse me, we start by seeing that this whole episode begins while Jesus was saying these things to them. Well, what were these things, and who were them? Who were they? Two weeks ago, we had left Jesus interacting with John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who had come to him and asked him why his disciples didn't fast. Because, I mean, the Pharisees fast. John's disciples fasted. Why don't your disciples fast? Well, during that interaction, today's passage happens. While he was saying these things to them, now don't pass that by too quickly, Matthew's tendency is to kind of machine gun things. Pow, 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 pow. 
giving brief and concise accounts of things. So sometimes things kind of run together. And sometimes it's hard to tell when something happened, then this, then this, then this, then this. But it could be days, weeks, even years apart sometimes in Matthew. But here we see clearly Jesus is being approached while he's interacting with somebody else who had approached. He had just dealt with the Pharisees, then he dealt with John's disciples, and now this man, who we'll look at in a moment. Now let me ask you this question. How hard is it to just have your attention called from one person, then another, then another, then another? It's a little annoying, isn't it? Moms, can I get an amen? Blazer's like, yeah, it's not funny. One kid calls for you, Mom! And you're dealing with that, and while you're dealing with that, another mom, then your husband, hey, honey, then another kid, mom, and you're going, what the heck? You know, can I just get a break? Can I go to the bathroom in peace? You know, feels like you're trapped in a never-ending cycle of someone needing your attention and or affection. And listen, I am sure that Jesus was in the midst of these types of things all the time. All the time. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Everywhere he went, big crowds. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. His disciples, Jesus. You know, people, hey, Jesus. And he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just seems like there's always somebody calling out to him, needing his attention, wanting something from him. And how does he respond? He always responds with grace and compassion if somebody needs help. And he always responds with firm conviction and authority if he's being challenged. You just don't ever see him flustered. He's like, I want you to just leave me alone. Now, he will withdraw from time to time because he knows he has to get away, which there's wisdom in that, by the way. But when somebody calls out to him and then somebody else calls out to him and somebody else, you just see him, bam, 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 bam. He is truly perfect man displaying his godness in situation after situation. So, after being confronted and questioned, behold, Matthew says, again, Behold's a word that means stop and look. Pay attention. Look upon something. And the something to look upon here is that a ruler come in and knelt before him saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Well, now that's something to behold, isn't it? First, let's deal with this guy. Matthew calls him a ruler. That doesn't mean a 12-inch stick, by the way. Okay. Now you can't get that picture out of your head, can you? This guy's like, Ooh. Does he have arms? I don't know. He's hopping. No. Matthew calls him a ruler. And what's that mean? Well, Mark and Luke tell us that he is a ruler of the synagogue and that his name is Jairus, J-A-I-R-U-S. And literally, he was the man in power in the synagogue there in Capernaum. He was the synagogue ruler. And Jesus is in Capernaum, and so the ruler of the synagogue, the place of worship, comes to Jesus at this point. So this being so, him being the ruler of the synagogue, he would have been a man of significant power and influence in the town. And what group of people do you think he would have had a lot of dealings with being the ruler of the synagogue? Yeah. This guy would have been in close contact with the scribes and the Pharisees. They would have been exhibiting tremendous amounts of influence on him. He would have been exhibiting influence toward them. He might have even been a scribe or a Pharisee. We don't have that information, but he was in close contact with them because they were the religious power brokers of the day, and he was the religious power broker there in Capernaum. So, how did Jesus get along with the scribes and Pharisees? Yeah, he was always confronting them. 
They were always questioning him, needling him, trying to get him to slip up or mess up so that they could accuse him. So the scribes and Pharisees were forthright in their opposition to Jesus and his life and his ministry. And here comes this guy who would have either been a part of them or been in real close contact with them. But he doesn't come confronting Jesus. Rather, he comes kneeling before him. The synagogue leader comes and kneels before Jesus. The word is proskuneo, and it means to worship. The synagogue ruler comes and worships Jesus in a very public and open place. What would his buddies say? They probably were standing there because they had just questioned Jesus. Actually, Jesus' disciples, and then Jesus confronted them. He comes and kneels before him. He comes and worships Jesus. Say what? How would this affect his standing in the religious community? We see he didn't care. Why didn't he care? Because his daughter, who we learned from other accounts, was 12 years old, had died. And this man was desperate. He was crazy desperate. Think about what he's just done. His daughter is dead... And they didn't have real good ways of embalming or protecting people, so they buried them quick. Once they were dead, they were in the ground, hopefully within a few hours, no more than a day after they were pronounced as dead. So this guy, his daughter is pronounced as dead. He leaves the house and seeks out Jesus. That's not normal. He would have had responsibilities, things to do in relation with the needs of his family and his dead daughter, right? But he had another idea. He went to a different place, a place that made him think, there is someone, capital S, who will make my daughter not dead anymore. That's crazy talk, y'all. When your daughter dies, you find the funeral home. You don't look for the itinerant rabbi. But this guy knew something. This guy knew that this itinerant rabbi was endowed with power like no one had ever seen before. This itinerant rabbi was displaying messianic powers. Lepers were being cleansed. Sick people were being made well. Paralytics were walking. Storms were being stilled. Demonized men were being delivered. This man, this Messiah, would have the power to raise my daughter back to life. If he's the Messiah... And if he has the power to do it, why not implore him to do it? So this guy was making a bold proclamation as he approached Jesus, recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, bowing in worship before him, and staking his daughter's life on the fact that Jesus was in fact that Messiah. It was a career decision. He was either crazy or he was divinely inspired to see what others were not seeing, especially his Pharisee buddies. And in that weird blend of possibilities, he ran and the first thing he does is fall down and worship Jesus. Wow. And if you question what his faith was actually in, just look at the statement to Jesus. My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Wow, again. 
This is not a plea, will you possibly help me? This is a bold statement of faith. My daughter has just died. But, I love that word here. She's dead, but. But Jesus, if you will come and lay your hand on her, she will live. Again, don't miss the hugeness of what this man is saying. There's no, if you can, there's no, do you think it might be possible? But rather, if you will do this, she will live. Now keep in mind, Matthew has not given us any indication in his gospel to this point of Jesus raising anyone from the dead. So it's not like Jesus had gone about just like going in cemeteries, everybody up, everybody up, that wasn't happening. In all the gospel accounts, all four of them, we only have three instances of resurrection. Here, the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus. Now the widow's son may have happened before this. We don't know for sure. I would say probably it has. Matthew doesn't record it. But this was a guy saying that Jesus could do something that he had never personally seen before. And not just make a rock flip over or turn water into wine. Those are interesting things. But he was saying, you can make my dead daughter live again. And in doing so, he was affirming Jesus' messianic qualifications, confirming that he did, this ruler did in fact, believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Son of Man, the promised coming one who would deliver God's people as we're told all through the Scriptures. So there's one resurrection. This guy was dead in his sins and his trespasses, just like you and me. And God woke him up and said, that's my son. That's the Messiah. Go to him. Resurrection 1. How does Jesus respond to this? Verse 19. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Jesus isn't shown to say anything. He simply rises and follows this guy and his disciples like a little train of chicks behind him follow. Jesus affirms this guy's faith and request by going with him to honor his request to come and lay his hand on his dead daughter and bring her back to life. Now again, don't just blow by this nine-word verse. This is not Jesus going, okay, let's see what happens. Jesus is about to do something so incredible and powerful, so messianic, that his getting up and following this guy is literally a monumental event in world history. Literally. And of course, his disciples are tagging along with him because that's what disciples do. They follow their master wherever he goes to learn of him and to learn from him. And can you imagine what they were thinking or feeling? The guy's daughter is dead. What do you think Jesus is going to do? Has he done that before? Can he do that? Have we resurrected? Dead? I don't know. Maybe she's not really dead. I don't know what they were thinking, but they follow him. But we said earlier that Jesus is always having his attention called for. So there's a little problem. Wherever Jesus goes, it seems that a crowd is always around him. And that's true here. As he's making his way to this dead girl, people are pressing in all around him. One of these people has an agenda. Look at verses 20 and 21. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment... 
I will be made well. So Matthew calls us to behold something here again. But this is not a leader of the synagogue. No. This is a woman in the crowd. She's described as one who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, if people are going to describe you, that's not how you'd want them to describe you, is it? So that, that's the person who suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. But that's the descriptor we have of her. We don't know what was causing her bleeding, but we know that it had been happening for 12 years. John's 12. And him being born seems like a long time ago to me. 12 years. I was in my early 30s 12 years ago. 12 years. Yikes. For 12 years, she had experienced abnormal menstrual type bleeding. For 12 years. Now that in and of itself is bad enough. But besides the physical aspect, this issue had caused emotional and spiritual problems as well. Anyone who had any kind of discharge of blood, including regular menstruation, was ceremonial, unclean, and could not participate in anything in the temple or the synagogue. She was an outcast in religious life in the town of Capernaum, like a leper. You see, unclean people can't be around clean things because unclean people make clean things unclean. And we see this mandated in the Levitical law in the early Old Testament, in the Torah. Any discharge or flow of blood made one unclean. Well, after 12 years of this, this lady has to feel dejected and rejected and hopeless until she starts hearing tales of this rabbi. There's a guy named Jesus. He healed a leper. Huh. There's this guy named Jesus, and and they lowered a paralytic down in front of him, and and he, he forgave his sins and told him to get up and walk, and the guy got up and walked. Huh. There's this guy named Jesus and he crossed the sea and these two guys had thousands of demons in them and he released them and now they're fine and they're telling people about who he is. And this lady's going, huh? And word keeps spreading and word keeps spreading and she keeps hearing, this guy's doing messianic things. You think he could do something for me? Twelve years. The other accounts say that doctors couldn't help her. And she had spent so much money her whole life trying to get better on doctors and she just got worse. But she heard about Jesus. Why couldn't he heal me? Why not me? So she develops a plan. It says, She said to herself, If I only touch his garment... I will be made well. And the phrase she said to herself implies that she kept saying it. She just kept saying it over and over. If I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. It kind of became her motto. If I can only touch his garment, I'll be made well. If I could touch his garment, I'll be made well. Over and over and over again. Planning, plotting, looking for an opportunity to just touch his garment. Well, what's that? Why? Why would she want to touch his garment? It takes a little Old Testament exploration to make sense of this. 
In two places in the Old Testament, God tells His people to sew fringes on their clothes. You're like, okay, stay with me. Numbers 15, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Oh, okay. Deuteronomy 22:12. you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. So this was a direct command from God to His people. These tassels were commanded by Him to keep His people focused on Him, to remember His commands. Every time they saw those tassels, they were to remember to keep God's law. But at the end of the Old Testament, and y'all might remember this when we went through Malachi, Malachi 4.2 says this, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Remember talking about the calf leaping around? We talked about that in Malachi several, several months ago. This, this particular passage there in Malachi came to be a messianic prophecy that the Jews saw as meaning that the coming Messiah would have healing powers in the very tassels that were sewn into His clothes. The corner mentioned in Numbers 15 were the wings referenced in Malachi 4. It's the same word. Corner and wings is the same word. So the Jews believed that healing, that healing that flowed in the wings of the Son of Righteousness would flow from the literal tassels of His garment. So this lady is putting two and two together. The Messiah will have healing in His tassels This guy's doing messianic things. I believe he's the Messiah, so I'm going to go touch those tassels. And it's going to make me, well, she's a pretty good exegete. It's almost like somebody was revealing something to her supernaturally. So this lady who for 12 years had suffered from this continual bleeding kept saying to herself, I need to touch his tassels. I need to touch his tassels. Why? Because he's the Messiah. And those tassels had healing in them, healing for her. And she kept saying it, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So she comes up from behind him. She'd be too ashamed to approach him face to face because she's an outcast. And she touched those tassels. How'd that turn out? Verse 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. (laughs) Well, it worked. It worked! But there's a lot more here than just that. We've got to jump over into Mark to get a little bit more detail on this interaction. Uh, This is uh, Holy Spirit inspired and John MacArthur inspired. Okay, His message talked about this pretty in-depth. Stay with me. Mark, 20, Mark 5, 25-34 gives us his account in a little bit more detail. <clears throat> and there was a woman who had a discharge, who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? 
And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Woo! There's a lot going on right there, y'all. We could spend a bunch of time here, but we don't have it. So let me combine Matthew and Mark's account real quick, and we see something really awesome. Mark 5.29, let me go back there, can't see, says that after the woman touched the garment, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So touch the tassel, she felt it, she knew it. Jesus felt power go out from him. He was leaking through his tassels. (laughs) It's crazy talk. Now Matthew says that Jesus turns and says, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now the thing to note here is that the healing and the being made well probably are not the same thing. Stay with me. The word for healed in Mark is iomai. I-A-O-M-A-I. you got a six-letter word with one consonant there. Iomai. And it means to be healed. So Mark says she was instantly healed. Now the word for made well back in Matthew is sozo, S-O-Z-O. And it means to be healed or to be saved. Well, which was it? The answer is both. The power of Jesus had healed her, Iome. And her faith in the Messiah had saved her, sozo. What's the difference? Her faith in Jesus as the Messiah had saved her and the power exhibited by that Messiah had healed her body. Both were true. She had been healed physically and been made well or saved spiritually. Second resurrection we've seen today. She had been saved spiritually. A confessing of Jesus as the Messiah didn't heal her and touching His garment didn't save her. It was vice versa. A confession of Jesus as the Messiah saved her and touching His garment healed her. And that's important. Her goal was to be healed physically. But she had to know who to come to for that healing, which was her spiritual saving. There's so much going on here. But remember, this lady wasn't Jesus' objective. She just happened, yeah right, on the way to somewhere else. So go to verse 23 of Matthew. Chapter 9. we got to leave her. So much there. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. Now, after interacting with this lady, Jesus arrives at the ruler's house. And what's going on there? Well, what's going on is what normally happens in Jewish death rituals at the time. The Talmud, which is a very intense explanation of the written and verbal Jewish laws says that even the poorest of the poor are to have at least two flute players and one professional wailer at their funerals. Even the poorest of the poor. At least two flute players and one wailer. You ready? That's what's going on. At a Jewish funeral. 
So they're having a funeral. Well, being a ruler of the synagogue, this guy would not be poor. So there were probably plenty of flutes and plenty of wailers at this one. After he lost his 12-year-old daughter, they wanted to show how sad they were. And the more wailers and the more flutes showed more sadness and more sadness. And it was just a cacophony, a din of noise. And Matthew says, Jesus saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. They were doing the Jewish thing in this time of loss. And it appears that they were doing it well. But Jesus didn't join the crowd. Quite the opposite, actually. He said, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Jesus tells the mourning crowd, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning crowd, go away. That's rude. Right? Y'all go away. Ah! It's not really rude. If that's all he had said, it would have been rude. But that's not all he said. He said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. All of a sudden, he's a coroner. Wait just a second. For real? Really? He tells them to go away because there's no need for mourning. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Now, is he saying that there's been a misdiagnosis? No. Be clear, this girl had died. Luke's account says later that after Jesus touches her, that her spirit returned. And if your spirit departs from your body, you are dead. James 2.6. But you... Oh, no, that's the wrong verse. That's what I got, 2.6. Anyway, James says in not 2.6, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We are a spirit in a body. Death is the spirit leaving the body. And if the spirit departs, our bodies are dead. So Jesus isn't saying that she hadn't died. He was saying that her death was temporary, like taking a nap, after which you wake up from again. So this is not support. Some people talk about soul sleep as opposed to death, that believers don't really die. You do. You die. Your spirit leaves your body. Your body is dead. has no life in it. Jesus was simply saying that this death wasn't final. And how did they react to that? How would you react to it? If it was your 12-year-old daughter who had died that you knew was dead, and this guy comes in and says, she's not dead, she's just asleep. That sounds like something a 3-year-old would say. She's just sleeping, Daddy. No, son, she's dead. And they reacted to him by laughing at him. And they laughed at him. I mean, I kind of get it, right? This guy comes in. He's a teacher. He teaches with great authority. But he don't know nothing about dead people. He don't know nothing about funerals, obviously. And they laughed. You're crazy, man. She's dead. D-E-D, I've been here for hours. We've been wailing for hours. And she ain't moved. She's cold. Touch her. You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. And they laughed. Baha, ha, 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 The word literally means they laughed hard. They jeered at him. Think belly laugh. Incredulous and demeaning. Man... Always laughs at God when we see Him doing something that we can't process. 
We laugh because we think we're greater or better than Him. His power makes no sense to us. It's just ridiculous. And we still do this to the Bible today, don't we? We jeer and we scoff saying it doesn't apply to our time. It doesn't apply to my situation, Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. God gives us clear commands in His Word and we laugh at them so that we can dismiss them. And here in Matthew, these people laugh because what Jesus says seems impossible. They know it's not true. But is it? Verse 25 starts with that word again. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. Third resurrection. (laughs) Jesus puts the crowd outside. They're kind of in the way and they're laughing at him. Who wants that around? Luke tells us that he just lets the girl's parents and three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James, in with him. So here's Jesus, these parents, three of his disciples, and a dead girl. And Jesus goes and takes the girl by the hand. And what happens? The girl arose. The dead girl arose. Now I'm not talking like limp pulled up off the table. I'm talking life. Rose! She's not dead anymore. She came back to life. Now again, don't just hear that and yawn. Yeah, that's neat. No, 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 no. This 12-year-old girl whose spirit had left her body had her spirit returned to her body and she was alive again. What if it was your 12-year-old daughter? You wouldn't yawn and go, that's neat. No, no. This dead girl came back to life. This 12-year-old girl who had died came back to life. Jesus brought her back to life. He did exactly what her dad proclaimed that he could do. The Messiah raised the dead just like he was capable of doing. Imagine that scene. Imagine being Peter, John, or James. Imagine being the girl's parents. How do you respond when a dead daughter is alive again? I don't know. She was dead and she came back to life. Imagine the girl. What was she thinking? Shoot. Gotta come back here? Where I was was pretty cool. Look at Luke's account of the aftermath. I think it's quite compelling. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let me tell you what. (laughs) Imagine walking in the mall one day with your daughter, walking in to buy her some clothes. Oh, wasn't she dead? compassion of Jesus though. The practical compassion. Get this girl something to eat. She looks awful. (laughs) She's looking a little pasty. Get her some sugar. Get her a Coke. Slap her on the face. 
No, no, she was fully alive. But he said, she's hungry. I don't know how long she'd been dead. Get her something to eat. It's like Lazarus when he comes out. He says, unbind him and let him go. We could just rejoice in the miracle and forget about the practical application, can't we? Yeah, she was alive, but she was hungry. Get her some food. That's discipleship, y'all. Jesus saves them, then he tells us to feed them. And then he tells them not to talk about it. Well, how'd that work? Well, let's go back to Matthew, last verse. And the report of this went through all that district. <laughs> yeah, well. Listen, when dead people come back to life, people are going to talk about it. When people are being saved, people are going to talk about it. When Jesus is just walking through and people are touching the hem of His garment and being healed, people are going to talk about it. When the Messiah starts doing Messiah-like things, people are going to talk about it. And maybe they can't fathom it. Maybe they don't understand it. But I saw it. She was dead and she walked out of that room and they were giving her a Kit Kat. I saw it. She was dead. He said she was asleep. I knew she was dead and she walked out of that room. I don't understand it. This has got to be him. And the report went through all that district. And we know that he had already reached up into Syria and the surrounding areas back in Matthew 4. People were talking. And then he's teaching with authority and he's doing all this stuff and he's calming storms. And people are starting to go, could this be the guy? And you know what? By and large, they missed it. We're going to get several chapters into Matthew and they're going to kill him. Because they missed it. They can't say they didn't know. They can't say they hadn't heard. They can't say they hadn't seen. The report went all through that district. Everybody knew this guy was raising people from the dead. And they said, nah, it's not him. Surely somebody else is coming because look at this guy. The natural man cannot deal with the act of God in their natural mind. They hate it. Don't matter that the report went through all the district. They weren't going to accept him. They were going to reject him by the foreordained plan of God. You would think if somebody's raising people from the dead, people would be lining up saying, sign me up, I'm with you. And that's not what happened. But some people saw it. Three people saw it today that we know. A synagogue ruler who had been brought back to spiritual life with his awareness of that this is the Messiah and I'm going to him because he can heal my daughter. This lady in the crowd who knew that the healing would flow through the tassels of the Messiah, so I'm going to reach out to him. And this little girl who looked up and the first thing she saw after coming back from the dead was Jesus. They knew. Do we? Application. Three W's. W-W-W-dot-application. That's where we're going today. Whoever, whenever, whatever. Whoever, whenever, whatever. Whoever. I want you to look at the range of people that Jesus dealt with today. He had started at a dinner party for sinners at Matthew's place. He was approached by Pharisees and then approached by the disciples of John 
Then a synagogue ruler came to him. Then an unclean woman. Then he approached a dead girl. And note his responses to these different people. He rebuffed the religious Pharisees who were questioning him and his motives. He rebuffed the disciples of John who were asking why his disciples weren't fasting. And then he went with a worshiping synagogue ruler. He healed and saved a sick woman. And he raised a dead girl. It seems to me that Jesus responds very well to the desperate, the dejected, and the dead. And that He deals very straightforwardly to the religious folks who don't seem to need His help. Just walks away from them. Where are you today? Questioning Jesus? Do you really care? Do you really know what you're talking about? He'll walk away from you. And He'll go to the desperate, the dejected, and the dead. Because that's who He came for. Whoever. Whoever is desperate, whoever is dejected, whoever is dead, that's the one that Jesus is going to. I don't care how rich, how poor, how able, how disabled you are. It doesn't matter. If you're desperate, if you're dejected, if you're dead, Jesus is coming for you. If you're a pious religious person, He's got no time for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's whoever. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, what happened here was this religious leader came, and he was weary and he was heavy laden. And he came to Jesus, and Jesus said, I'll follow you. I'll give you what you want. This dejected, sick, bleeding woman comes up behind him. She's labored. She's heavy laden. And he gave her rest for her soul and her body. And this dead girl lays there unable to help herself. And Jesus comes to her. She wasn't laboring. She wasn't heavy laden. She was dead. So was I. You were dead in your sins and trespasses but He has made us alive. That's who Jesus comes for. Whoever is weary, whoever is heavy laden, whoever is desperate, whoever is dejected, whoever is dead, that's who Jesus comes for. 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, 
You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to boast of your pious religion, of your ability, of your goodness, of your holiness, Jesus did not come for you. And He will not come for you. But if you realize, you know what, I'm not that wise. I'm not that great. I'm lowly. I'm not powerful. I'm not of noble birth. I'm foolish. God says, that's the kind of things that I choose. It's the kind of people that I choose. People who are despised. Like a woman bleeding for 12 years. That's who I come for. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus will never cast out anyone that comes to Him. Let me say that again. Jesus will never cast out anyone who comes to Him. You say, well, what, what, what if I'm not chosen? Let me tell you what. If you've got a desire to come to Jesus, you're chosen. If you're desperate and dejected or dead and you know it and you have a desire to come to Jesus, He's not going to cast you out. Whoever. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Application for us there is first come. Second, extend the invitation to whoever. I think it was Spurgeon that said, if all the elect had a white stripe painted up their back, I'd go around lifting up coattails. But since they're not, I'll preach the gospel. To who? Whoever. Whoever. Whenever. (laughs) I'm just moved by the compassion of Jesus. How responsive He is to the needs of people. See how he handled these requests today. He got up and went with the ruler. He was sitting at the table. He was eating. People are peppering him with questions. He's reclined at the table. And I can't put new wine in old wine skins. And this guy comes and flops down before him and says, I need you to come. And he gets up and he goes. Stopped his meal. How many of y'all would do that? <laughs> Depends on what the meal was, right? <laughs> He's got somewhere to go. He's got something to do. He's got a mission. But along the way, this woman reaches out and touches him. Leave me alone. i got stuff to do. That's not the response of Jesus. Take heart, daughter. He stopped right in the middle of everything. This synagogue leader is probably going, Jesus, Jesus, dead, dead daughter. He's like, I'll be with you in a second. I've got work to do right here, right now. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. She knows it. And then he goes into the very room where a dead girl was. That's going to make him unclean. You're right. Not Jesus. If he's got to go somewhere and deal with death, he's going to do it. And all the while, now get this, this, we didn't talk about this much. All the while, he's teaching and giving an example for his disciples to follow. They're picking up on all this. They're seeing all this. They're watching him. There is no time when he's too busy. 
There's no time when He's not concerned about what we need or want as His people. Now, let me tell you this. You may come to Him with your request and He may say no. But there's no time that God is not attentive to your needs as His child. Whenever. Best of times, worst of times. Easiest of times, hardest of times. When things are going well, when we're acting like animals. I like that. Or when I am deep in prayer and I feel like I'm in the very presence of God. He is always there. He is always there. He is always there. And He will respond to us when we come. Just one passage here to support that. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Whenever. So application, when should we come? Whenever. The answer is yes to when we should come. There's no time that's inconvenient to the Lord of Lords. Whoever, whenever, lastly, whatever. Listen to me, church. If you sit here this morning and you are saved, Jesus will meet your need, whatever it may be, if you come to Him with it. You say, well, He hasn't so far. Sure about that? He knows what you need more than you do. And He cares more about you than you do. So I'm saying come boldly. Let your request be made known to God, whatever it may be. My daughter's dead. Please come. Okay. I've been bleeding for 12 years. Please help me. Okay. We need talk. We need explanation. We need instruction. Okay. I'm dead and I need life. Okay. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not saved, you're dead in your sins. Jesus says, bring that to me and I'll give you life. But you've got to recognize that you're dead. How does that happen? The Holy Spirit of God whoosh, does that work. That work of regeneration that shows you your need for Him where you come and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Show me Jesus as that Savior. Help me to know Him. God says, yeah, whatever. I can do that. Whatever you need. Maybe you don't need a miracle today. I, mean, I think we all do, but... Maybe you're just anxious. Maybe just this everyday animalistic life is just bad. You know what? Bring that to Him too. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. About what? Wrong verse? Anything. Anything! But in everything, whatever it is, bring it to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Maybe you've got 
a medical procedure coming up. Bring it to God. Maybe you just got another week of work coming up. Bring it to God. Maybe you're having issues with your kids. Bring it to God. Maybe you're having problems with not showing self-control in your life. Bring it to God. Maybe you can't sleep. Bring it to God. There's a pattern here. All these things end with bring it to God. Whatever it may be. He's not going to tell you to go away. He's too busy. But you know what that takes? That takes some humility. Because we think we can do it. I'll just muscle through. I'll push on through. I'll get it done because I've got to get it done. 1 Peter 5, last passage we'll look at. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. How many of your anxieties? All of them. Oh, there's a religious world out there that would say, well, you should never be anxious. Ha! <laughs> well, I am. So what am I going to do with it? Take them. I'm going to catch. Literally means to throw them. Throw them on him. And when you get another one, throw it on him. And when you get another one, you throw it on him. Christian life is a throwing life. I don't want this. You take it. And he says, I'll take it. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for a religious leader whose daughter just died. He cares for a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He cares about a dead 12-year-old girl. And he cares about you. This is the Jesus that the Scripture tells us about. This is the Jesus that we saw in Matthew 9 today. This is the Jesus who wants to meet you where you are and take all of your anxieties from you. This is the Jesus who wants to meet you and raise you to life. If you're dead in your sins and your trespasses. And he wants us to know him. Not question him about religious stuff. He wants us to come and humble ourselves and say, I need you. And he says, good. Because I'm worthy. Whatever it may be. Whoever you may be, whenever you may need it, whatever it is, Jesus is there. Let's pray. God, you have done great things all through history. You have done great things in my life. You have done great things here in this place. And I ask that you would show us by the power of your Spirit, whoever we may be, whenever it may be, whatever it is that we may need, you are the Messiah. You are the one who is worthy. God, if there be those here this morning who do not know you as Savior, breathe life into them. Touch them and say, rise. That's your work, God. And for those of us who do know you by your grace, help us to bring all of our cares, all of our worries, all of our sicknesses, all of our diseases, and to cast them upon you and trust you with your sovereign proclamation of what happens in those moments. And may we see you and know you as sufficient because you are. Thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? (laughs) Now, now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you 
with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can. It's breakfast, y'all.